We're in Matthew 18, and Jesus, we're getting into a part where Jesus is really teaching because the Sermon on the Mount happened in Matthew um, 5, 6, and 7, and then Jesus lived out a bunch of the Sermon on the Mount in 8 and 9, and then he started doing things and miracles and teachings. He's traveling along more, but he is getting closer to the Pentecost, not the Pentecost, the Passover, where he's going to die. And so you have to remember all this in the context of Jesus has read the prophets, so he has read about what the Messiah, what's going to happen to the Messiah, how the Messiah is going to die, why the Messiah is going to die that way. He knows it's going to be during a Passover because the whole Passover meal points to the uh, God providing atonement to rescue like Abraham and Isaac, right? Abraham and Isaac, they go and God Abraham Isaac says, "Where is the sacrifice?" and Abraham says, "God will provide a sacrifice." And right there at that last moment Um, God provided the ram so that Isaac didn't have to die, right? So that deliverance comes into the Passover meal. The Passover meal is God providing deliverance for his people. And then, so Jesus knows that all this is happening and coming. So, in the midst of this, you get some more teachings. Because the disciples have been around, they've heard a lot more. So they're asking deeper questions and they're asking Jesus more things to explain more because they, they want to learn this stuff too. They don't know he's getting ready to leave, but they are growing in their knowledge of him and growing in their understanding. So, they ask, this is Matthew 18.1, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So we know from other gospels they argue about this. This is kind of like the, the, uh, the disciples' hobby. This is their side discussion, is arguing about who's the best out of all of them. We just had the thing a week ago where in Matthew 17, where Jesus said, You're Peter. This was not revealed to you by men, but by God. And I'm going to name you Peter, and on this rock I'm going to build my church. And so some people think that means Peter was the greatest. But they're still arguing about who's the greatest. So they just ask Who's the greatest? Who's the best in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, calling to himself a child, he put him in the midst of him. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So as Jesus is walking along, there's a crowd around him. There's just a mob of people, and they're all listening to him talk. And um, this this kind of format of speaking and having church like this comes, it's a a copy of how the Jews did their, their Sabbath synagogue, where one person would get up and preach and, um, and elaborate on the scriptures. That, that's what the rabbis would do. That's what Paul, when Paul travels around in Acts, you see him go to the synagogue and the synagogue leaders see, oh, this is the Apostle Paul, right? Let's see if he wants to preach today. Let's see if he has anything to say. And uh, so, you know, 
Like if we all had our prayer time and we come up and I look back there and Billy Graham is sitting back there next to Mike. Okay, we would all run, right? But before he died, if Billy Graham was up there, we'd be like, whoa, uh, do you want to preach today? Because we would all love that. That's, that's not the main way they taught. The main way they taught was rabbis would just live and do stuff and walk around and travel. And people would always be asking them questions. And they would always be answering questions. And so you, would, you might be working at the market. Or you might be digging a hole. And a rabbi would walk by. And there'd be a little crowd and we'd be like, hey, let's, let's hold off on this a little bit and go listen to the rabbi. And then we'd go and we'd listen. And you might take an hour or two to listen to this rabbi answer questions. You might have questions for him. And you'd ask him in public. And other people might have the same questions. And then he would answer in public. And then you'd go back to digging your hole or doing your work or working at the market. So Jesus can just say, hey, hey kid, come here. Puts him right in the middle. The kid didn't say... I'm only going to come if you promise to not embarrass me. The kid didn't come and say, I'm only going to stand in front of you if you give me something in return. What are you going to give me if I come? Right? The kid just came. Calling him a child, he put him in the middle. He said, unless you're like a child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Whenever Jesus told a parable, every single thing about the parable didn't apply to the parable. Just the thing he was trying to teach. So, like when he does the parable of the sower, Jesus doesn't analyze types of seed and their likelihood of germination. No, it's just a parable about soil, right? So in this same thing, when he says, unless you turn and become like children... You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. How did this child humble himself? Jesus said, hey, come here. And the kid came. He responded to Jesus' call. That's it. That's the... Jesus isn't saying that we should all... uh, You know, make stupid choices like you do when you're six. Jesus isn't saying that if we don't get what we want, we should throw fits like you do when you're four. It's just in the very simple, cut and dry, be like children. When Jesus says, come here, you go. So then he elaborates elaborates on it. Whoever receives a child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me, who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and thrown into the depths of the sea. So we kind of read this as Jesus is talking about kids. And Jesus is teaching about children. But you've got to remember, he's in a parable. He's teaching a parable. So they said, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He said, hey kid, come here. The kid comes. Jesus says, whoever's like this, who believes like this, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
anybody that just obeys Jesus and anybody that leads somebody that obeys Jesus astray it would be worse it would be a terrible terrible state for them so it's not just leading kids astray it's leading any believers that believe with that sincere innocent I'm going to do whatever you say Jesus faith so here we are in 2020 and sometimes people are radical and they say I just want to follow Jesus so bad I just I want to give away everything I have and be poor and follow Jesus um, I, I have heard people say this to me well that might be a calling for you but it's not a calling for your kids so you shouldn't do it or that's not for everybody not everybody has to follow Jesus so extreme maybe you should get a better job and it's laughable because we want to follow Jesus the whole Bible talks about Christ coming for us and, and compelling us and giving us life and he's the purpose we want to love the Lord our God with all of our heart soul mind and strength and so anytime somebody wants to do that let's lead them in it let's cheer them on how can we how can we pave their road to make them drive on that direction better right how can we fuel that more and um, and woe, woe to anybody that leads people astray when they, when that, with that sincere faith, with that, that honest, real, pure faith that they just want to follow Jesus. We shouldn't lay any stumbling block ahead of them. Anything. Uh, there was a time where Cindy and I, we said, okay, look, here's what we're doing. Anytime any missionary person comes and asks for money, we're going to hand them a hundred bucks. Like, it doesn't matter where we are financially, let's just keep a hundred bucks aside because when people are, are thinking about being missionaries and they're trying to fundraise, it's so hard, it's so discouraging, it's so weird and countercultural to, to do that that we want to just encourage them right off the bat with a hundred bucks. Just, we might not be long-term supporters of them. They might be going to do a mission in Bible college. I mean somewhere that we don't really know that that's the best place to go do mission whatever we're going to give them a hundred bucks to encourage them in missions and to go and do it um, yes encourage that and then let's be that ourselves let's be that simple how many times there's been times where I've been in conversations with people that have made following Jesus so complicated and so complex and with so many rules and such such a hierarchy of demands that I, I remember this that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is like somebody that just I mean Jesus' words whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven I might not understand transubstitutionary atonement I don't understand yeah, other big words but I know that I can follow Jesus and I'm going to keep following Jesus and maybe I will learn what all that other stuff means but if somebody as simple as a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven I want to stay close to that
Then, so the other cool thing about this whole chapter is it's all in the context of itself. So none of these things are isolated. So Jesus talks about, they want to know who's the greatest. Jesus talks about having faith like a child and don't tempt them. But then in Matthew 18, 7, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. It is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one whom, by whom the temptation comes. He's saying there is going to be temptation in the world. It's necessary. It's here. The devil, Adam and Eve fell. There is sin in the world. There's going to be temptation. Just don't be the one that brings it. Don't be the one by whom it comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet and to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. So that sounds really intense. And you start thinking, well, okay, how am I going to explain this to my HMO? Well, I gouged my eyeball out. Does that cover? Do I have to call in network or out of network if I chop my hand off because it causes me to sin, right? None of the disciples. So you have to read this and you have to read it for what it is. Jesus said it, it's real, it's truth. But none of the disciples were missing eyes, hands, lips. I mean, here's Peter with his lips, denied Christ three times. So if this is a law to follow, then you would think that when Jesus is grilling fish after Easter and they all come to the shore and he's like, get some of your fish, I don't have enough for you, bring some of yours and we'll grill it. And Peter... You need to chop your lips off. He didn't say that, right? Because he's still in this parable. He's still teaching in parables. He's still teaching. You don't, you know, he told Nicodemus, you have to be born all over again. And Nicodemus said, how can I be born all over again? That's crazy. How can I be like a little child when I know how to run a carpentry business? You don't have to be like a child in every way. You have to have that kind of faith that says, hey, come here, kid, and you come. You obey Jesus when he calls you. So Jesus is saying, avoid temptation. Temptation is necessary, but you have control over it. Your, your hand isn't out of control to make you sin. You control your hand. Your eyeballs aren't out of control that you can't control them. You can control them. You have power over them. They don't have power over you. As much as I think with my belly at Thanksgiving, okay, every night, I have control over my belly, right? I have control over my passions. I have control over my temptations. Um, and he's saying, treat them. Now, did you also notice... He didn't say, when somebody tempts you, chop their hand off. When somebody makes something that looks like something that will tempt you, gouge their eyeball out. It's you deal with yourself. 
All the chopping, cutting, discipline is on you. It's not on others. But be intense about it. Be that kind of rigorous about it. Um, there, there are all different practical ways you can do this. If there's a thing, you know, gosh, every time I see that person post on Facebook, I get so mad, I'm, I'm bitter to my wife, I walk around grumpy for three hours. Mute them on Facebook. Get rid of that, right? If every time that commercial comes on that just enrages you and causes you to sin, watch a different channel or change the channel or don't watch TV at all. You know, there are things that we can do that we can control these things. Um, I used to have a roommate, and every once in a while, he would sleep on the living room floor, fully clothed, like in jeans and tennis shoes. And I'd be like, what are you doing? And he'd be like, I need to sleep out here tonight. I can't be alone in my room. It's like, okay. I've known houses full of guys where when they're at home, they all take their cell phones so they can't be off looking at things that they shouldn't be looking at in secret on their phones. They have a bowl by the front door of their house. And when they come in the door, everybody puts their phone in that bowl. And that's the only place where you can use your phone in the house. So nobody, nobody's going to do anything in secret. So their temptations will come. It's necessary that temptations will come, it even says. But there's things that we can do to control, to control that. Wait, I'll give you one more stupid one. Uh, when we lived in Central Asia, we got depressed a lot. We, we got really discouraged a lot of times, and it was really, there's a really a lot of hard things. My wife had a secret weapon, and it was a smile that was about this big, a big, like a photograph, like photoshopped and blown up real big, on a stick. And it was kept in a safe place, so it would only be used in case of emergency. And she would get that thing out and hold it on. Because that was the only way she could smile. That was the only way she could do it. But when you look at that, you cannot help but smile and laugh. And you're just discouraged and down. And, you know, is it spiritual? Is it mental? Whatever. It would change things. So that was a way to flee temptation to despair. Flee temptation to fear. Flee temptation to gossip. A great way to flee temptation to gossip is to pray for the person that you want to criticize and gossip about. And just pray that God would make you love them and go mow their grass and wash their car. And, oh my goodness, a revolution. All right. You got your own examples. You got the Holy Spirit. This is all commentary on Jesus saying flee temptations. Don't be the mechanism of temptation. And when you're tempted, Flee it. Get it out of here. Avoid it. But at the same time, know that temptation is not sin. Jesus did not die on the cross for your temptations. Isn't that wild to think about that? Like, I used to get real guilt and I'd just be all down about just being tempted. Oh, I've been struggling all day. Oh, this is so terrible. And, uh, and somebody taught me about this. Jesus didn't die on the cross for your temptation. He died on the cross for your sins. 
He took away the judgment and the punishment that comes if you give in to that temptation. C.S. Lewis said that the only person that knows how long a temptation lasts is the people that resist it. If you're resisting the temptation and all of a sudden you're over it, you know how short it lasted. If there's a temptation and you give into it, you don't know that it was only going to last for another four seconds. And then it was going to pass. He was going to get over it. Um, So we can really control ourselves and temptation itself isn't sin. So Paul, the Apostle Paul talks about this. This is 1 Corinthians 10.13. This is a great, if you know of somebody or yourself or struggling with temptation, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to all of us. So when I'm tempted by something on a Tuesday afternoon, it's not like aliens came out and I'm the first person they've ever contacted. The temptation that is on me, I can have confidence that other people, probably thousands of other people, have had that exact same temptation. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. You have control over it. But with the temptation, He will provide the way of escape so you may be able to endure it. So you can endure the temptation because God gives you a way of escape. The escape could be the Holy Spirit prompting you, saying, don't do this. You're thinking that word in your mouth. Don't say it. Don't tell your wife this statement. Wait 10 seconds. Just, if you can be quiet, just be honest. This has happened to me. The Holy Spirit says, if you can be quiet for 10 seconds, you will get through this and you will not disrupt the household. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Now I'm going to say it. No, I'm not. He gives you a way out. But, What do I always say? Context, context, context. Look at the context of that. Paul says, God will give you a way out when you're tempted. Therefore, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. The cup of blessings that we bless, isn't it a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, isn't it participation in the body of Christ? Paul connects temptation with our community with the body of Christ. And so when I'm tempted, I can think for just a second, wait a minute, I am connected to the body of Christ. Do I want to drag do I want to drag Jim into this sin? Because I'm connected with him as a part of the body of Christ. And I'm tempted to do this thing, but if I do it, I'm dragging Jim Carnahan along with me. And that is a real killjoy. No offense. No way, right? Isn't it awesome that, that Paul is trying to build this church and he's trying to help people to grow together and here's how to be Christians together. And he brings it back to Jesus saying, you're going to be tempted, but when you're tempted, you drag all of us with you into that temptation. So flee from it. Resist it. You're a part of the body of Christ. 
He also gives a way out that he's paid for your sins. That that sin that you're going to commit, I always say, that horrible sin I'm going to commit when I'm 65 years old, Jesus has already died for that and already forgiven it. And I've said that enough time that uh, one of my kids was like, what are you going to do when you're 65? I'm like, that's just an example. Jesus has already died for all your sins. So I've got to change my age up, I guess. They are forgiven. That's the message of the, the apostles. Not that your sins will be forgiven on Judgment Day. They will. Not that your sins were forgiven up until this point and now they aren't. No. Your sins are forgiven. That is the ultimate escape. The ultimate escape from, from temptation is that I don't even have to do that. And if I do it, it's, it's Jesus has already died for it. So I don't have to walk around in guilt and shame and pain. But you know what? I don't want to walk around in guilt and shame and pain anyway. Jesus, I don't want to give Jesus more things to die for. Do you see how that works? And then all of a sudden you walk in obedience, which comes back to Jesus saying, Hey kid, come here. Yes, Jesus. And being that simple. So then you got this one weird verse. I'm going to spend a minute on it. Matthew 18.10 So don't despise any of these little kids. See, Jesus is still talking in parables about who's the greatest in the kingdom. Don't despise them. I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So somehow, this one line about Jesus saying they're angels turned into a whole theology of angels and guardian angels and all that business, right? This is the only thing Jesus says about it. He doesn't give us any other teachings anywhere else. Um, <clears throat> he was probably giving in to some of the beliefs of the day because the Jewish people were really into angels and they had a whole developed hierarchy of angels. They had special names for special angels that did this and angels that didn't do that. So there is something real about angels. They are real things. But I want to I kind of get biblical with angels for just a minute. Um, the Bible doesn't ever say that we should trust them, pray to them, glorify them, hope in them, or thank them. Isn't that wild? There's a place where John bows down to the angel, and the angel says, Dude, get up! Quit bowing down to me! Whoa! Because that would be idolatry, to bow down and pray to an angel. Another wild thing I heard, angels, when do they get their wings? Right? You've seen the movie? No! They got their wings in the 4th century when worshippers of the goddess Nike, who is the goddess of victory, and she had wings, were drawing angels, and Christianity was becoming the mandatory religion under Constantine. So they worked Nike into their artwork by giving the angels wings. Before the 4th century, angels just looked like men. So when angels came to visit Abraham, and when angels came to visit Lot, did they have wings? They looked just like men, right? So, kind of weird. Little, puts a spin on things, doesn't it? 
So, Jesus is saying, don't, don't shun them away. Don't push kids away. Is he talking about kids? Yes, but he's also talking about these very innocent, pure believers. People that believe, just obey Jesus with that, that innocent belief of whatever Jesus says I'm going to do. So if you have all of that, you have verses 1 through 11 as context of people asking Jesus questions along the road and he's explaining things. That is all the setup for Jesus to give like this master class in forgiveness. So if the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is somebody that does what Jesus says without any hesitation... You know that you can avoid temptation. You have the power to do it. You also get the grace that somebody else might be tempted. And even though they had the power to resist it, they might fall. And they might fall in temptation. And in that context, Jesus gives this parable. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray... Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? If he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven, is it not? It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. God doesn't want anybody to be led astray. God doesn't want any kid to get on the wrong course or get with the wrong crowd or be around the wrong people. And it's not that he doesn't want it and so if they do it, he doesn't like them. It's that he doesn't want it, that that's not his plan for them. And just like it's not his plan for that one sheep that went astray. And so he will lead, it is in God's character and nature, to go after lost sheep. To go after people that are wandering off. And, um, and he goes after them. He really does. He loves, he loves us, lost, uh, us lost kids when we're, when we're off doing our crazy thing. And so... Temptation comes. It's a necessary thing. People can fall into it. But God really wants to go after people that fall into temptation. See, we, we aren't really like that, right? That's not really our nature. If we're going to be like that, we have to be that from God. Um, if, if we see somebody that we know is in sin and is doing wrong and is bad and is brash about it, I want to keep my kids away from them. I want to stay away from them. I don't want to talk to them. Right? I want to avoid them. Uh, we moved into our neighborhood, and I realized any neighborhood you live in is going to be full of sinful people, right? And if you hide from them, then you shouldn't move into a neighborhood. But we've moved into a neighborhood on purpose, and then I realized, okay, i got to confront this. I, I, I didn't move into this rough neighborhood so I could hide in my house. And so I developed a habit of if you're within the range of my house, I will likely walk up to you and introduce myself no matter what you're doing. And um, I've interrupted drug deals. I've talked to drunk drivers. 
I've gotten all kinds of confusing looks, like what in the world are you doing walking into this, right? Um, because I'm, I'm walking into it. I'm trying, it's not always easy, it's very difficult, and it's scary, but to go into that, that's what God's character is. That's what He does. He goes into it. Alright, so then, I'm going to give you homework. I'm not going to go through the whole second. The last 20 verses of Matthew 18 in four minutes. No. This last section is all Jesus explaining to Peter how to forgive people. Peter's like, so how many times should I forgive people? If we're chopping off our hands because we're sinning and we're gouging out our eyeballs because it makes us sin, you got to give me the formula for forgiveness. And uh, Jesus gives it to him. And he says, you just keep on forgiving. You just keep on forgiving sin. And don't stop. 77 times a day. There were actual rabbis that had numbers. You know how we have denominations that divide over like what the specific thing they focus on is? They had rabbis that uh, people would divide over which rabbi taught what. And there were some rabbis that taught seven times. Th this question that Peter asks, um, do I forgive him seven times? Do I forgive him 77 times? There were different rabbis that taught those different numbers. So Jesus tells this parable where basically a guy is forgiven so much. He's forgiven uh, um, a lifetime, a lifetime of working would never pay off this debt. And he is forgiven that debt. And after being forgiven that debt, he goes out to somebody that owes him a quarter. And he says, you better give me my quarter you owe me. And the guy says, I don't have a quarter. He's like, I'm going to throw you in jail. And Jesus is telling the parable, so he's making it comical. He's, he's making it silly. He's exaggerating on purpose. So in this parable, the dude that owed a quarter goes to prison after the guy that owed $100 billion got completely forgiven and set free. So the, his buddies hear about this, and they go to the dude that forgave in the first place. And they say, man, you forgave this guy everything, but he just locked this dude up in jail for a quarter. The master that forgave said, that is not right. So he goes down to the jail, he pays a quarter, gets this guy out of prison, and then they go grab this dude that got forgiven, and they lock him up, and uh, it's bad. In anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he could pay all of his debt which would basically be forever, right? He's going to die. He's going to rot in jail, paying off his debt. He'll never do it. This is all, this is not a parable about once your sins can get forgiven, can you then be unforgiven over again? It's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The greatest is whoever hears him and goes to him and believes it and obeys him. And then you should resist temptation. And when somebody doesn't resist temptation and they give in and they sin, you should forgive them. Because you yourself have been forgiven. You yourself have been forgiven actually more than that person 
So whenever we see somebody sinning, this is a great exercise to do, and it's probably, I mean, I don't know you guys, but it might be true. Whatever I'm judging somebody for, whatever sin they're committing, I probably have done worse. That was a thing I would tell them at the rescue mission. I might not have done what, and I got this from another, I stole it from another guy. I haven't done what you did, but I have the capacity to. And I probably have the capacity to do worse. So whatever sins we judge people for, whatever debt we're trying to collect on people and we're throwing them in jail because they won't give us the quarter they owe us, we've been forgiven so much more than what we are putting them in for. What we're locking them up for, we've been forgiven so much more than that. Leaps and bounds more than that. And so as I walk around and I see people, and I see people doing things, or I get mad at them, why are they doing that? What? Oh, stupid, you know, evil. It didn't say to gouge out their eye or chop off their hand. It said, if your eye is making you sin, if your hand is, I need to be fleeing from sin. And the sin I'm committing right now is judgment and hatred and anger and wrath. And I'm committing, you know, that person only killed one person. But if I hate everybody that kills somebody, I'm in my heart killing people over and over and over again, right? So Jesus gives this awesome parable in the context of when he says, come, you come. When he says, don't give in to temptation, you fight it with all of your might to resist it. And you definitely don't want to be the one that brings it to somebody else and lead them astray. And then whenever people do give in to temptation, know that God is running after them more than all 99 of the people that didn't give in to temptation. There's 99 people that are sitting up on that mountain proudly resisting temptation. And God isn't with them. He leaves, in this parable, he leaves them to go be with that person that's lost. And then he wants to forgive them completely, just like he's forgiven us. Just like he's forgiven me. Completely. So I need you. We need each other. When we, when we are tempted, on a Tuesday afternoon, I have the opportunity to lust, slander, gossip, hate, and at the exact same time, you are having the opportunity to lust, slander, gossip, hate. And we can pray for each other. So that's the final, the final thing that we do with all of this, is when you're tempted, immediately ask God, I know I'm not the first person to be tempted by this. Who else is being tempted by this right now? Martha. Okay, Lord, bless her. And turn that temptation into a signal to pray for one another. And then what happens? Well, you're tempted as much as I am. We get a whole week of me praying for a whole bunch of people, which is powerful and awesome, right? So that's how we turn the whole thing around and submit it to Christ. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for always giving us a way out of every temptation. Thank you for the ultimate way out. 
that you died on the cross for our sins and you rose from the dead and that you put your Holy Spirit in us to give us new life and to know and to discern these things and to, to communicate with you all the time. We praise you for that, Lord. And I pray that you'd help us to do that this week, that you would enliven all of this in us, that we would run from sin with the ferocity of chopping a limb off, that we would hold on to you and embrace you and love you just like a kid getting called by their name. We praise you and we exalt you, Lord. Amen. All right. Let's stand and sing number 316 together.